O Lord, you have given us your word as a light to shine upon our path. Grant us so to meditate on that word and to follow its teaching that we might find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day when we too can see Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now we're continuing on a journey through the Gospel of Matthew with the disciples in Jesus as Jesus is revealing more and more of himself to the disciples through the miracles. Last week we read a feeding of 5,000 men plus women and children, so probably 10,000, in which Peter and the disciples learned that they were enough and that they had enough. Now we're moving from the wilderness into the, the raging sea, and in this next miracle, Jesus is going to reveal just who he is, or shall I say the disciples will finally figure out who he is, and then they will come to realize who they can be in turn. So listen now for God's word to us as I read from chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up himself to the mountains to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat was battered by waves far from land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking across the sea to them. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and started to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, O oh, you of faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There ends our reading. Now, some of the nuances and metaphors in the 21st century of what that we just heard might be lost on us. Although we live next to a very large body of water that can in one moment have angry waves and the next minute look like a, a smooth mirror of glass, we don't have the same attention to words that an early Hebrew listener might have had at that point in time. And a listener to Matthew's Gospel when it was written would have grasped much more than the physical reality of water. For the Hebrews, a large body of water often represented an evil power that oppressed God or was in opposition to God's plan for salvation for people. And God seemed to always be rescuing people from water. There was Noah, who sought shelter from the flood in an ark. And it was a tiny little ark that held Moses as he drifted down the Nile River as an infant. The Red Sea needed to be parted to allow the exiles to flee from Egypt. In the book of Noah, when the seas raged with anger, God sent a big fish to hold Jonah safely until Jonah finally figured out he was going to do what God told him to go do. In Job, God tramples on water and walks into the recesses of the deep. And the psalmist often speaks of the power of the seas of, as a symbol of evil. There's, save me, O God, for I am the waters up to my neck. And as we sit in this house of worship, it is in the symbol of an ark, something to hold us safely. You can see it from the roof. So many houses of worship are like that. 
Karen and I have the beautiful view that we can see your seats are alternating greens and blue to look like the waves of the water. So make sure you look at that. Raging seas and howling storms have represented throughout time danger and chaos. So there's fear that dominates in this story. There's the fear of being separated from Jesus and fear of the raging waters. And fear can become so infectious that when Jesus approached the disciples walking on water, even his image was terrifying. Matthew tells us they cried out in fear, these able-bodied fishermen. And they said, who can walk with such authority? Is it a ghost? And Jesus replied simply, it's I. Now an early Hebrew listener would have recognized him but also the words reinforced a sense of divine revelation. For a Hebrew listener, they would have immediately thought of Moses and God on Mount Horeb at the encounter of the burning bush. At that time, Moses asks God, what's your name? And God replies just simply, I am. So the act of walking on water was unmistakable. Jesus was exercising his prerogative that belongs to God alone. And Jesus' statement of, it is I, as his identifier, carries the same divine sovereignty as God's I am. And it's always come. God has always come to trouble, troubled people. So Peter gets it. Peter gets it by now. And we have a theological word for that. Peter has an epiphany. He sees that Jesus is divine. And he sees that having faith in Jesus will draw him something, draw him closer to something even bigger. Having faith in Jesus will draw him closer to God. Focusing on Jesus dispelled his fear, and so with renewed confidence in his divine presence, Peter sets aside his lifelong experience as a fisherman, all of the practical knowledge of being in a boat and being out on the sea, and he decides to rely upon his faith. Peter asks, command me to come to you, and Jesus complied with the simple, come. He did. Peter walked on water, and for a brief moment, Peter felt what it was like to completely trust in God. But Peter's human. He noticed the strong wind, and he lost faith, and he started to sink. Even the most accomplished and faithful servants can become overwhelmed when faced with danger, faced with danger that's more than they could have imagined. So Peter is ready to believe, but fear can be so potent and it's hard to hold on to faith in the midst of a storm. Walking on water, it's evidence that God welcomes us to participate in miracles, just as it was like for them to feed the 5,000 the week before. But some will look at Peter's escapade and conclude, if your faith is strong enough, no harm will ever befall you, and there's no room ever for fear and doubt ever in your faith. But that sets the bar so high for faith that we can become afraid to acknowledge the doubts and fears that we harbor. So how's that for beginning to drown in a circle between fear and doubt and faith and fear and doubt and faith? That's the wrong way to go about it. When bad things happen, and they will, some people will speak as though they believe a lack of faith caused whatever accident happened or illness or tragedy. Or perhaps that God isn't compassionate enough to you to protect you, or that God isn't a loving God. When we're afraid or angry or don't understand how something tragic could happen, we want to assign blame because we live in a world of cause and effect. 
So this brings me to another one of those little Christian lies. I promise this is my last platitude of faith that I want to dispel. This one just hits home so hard and it hurts. I hate it when someone says it was God's will. Perhaps you've heard that. When I was a chaplain, I would want to scream when I would hear someone say that to a grieving family. The late William Sloan Coffin was one of the preeminent preachers of the 20th century, and he offered a sermon at the Riverside Church in New York just two weeks after his 20-year-old son died in a single car accident. Coffin is angry and he is grieving as he recounts the story of a woman who came to comfort him by bringing food and then said, I just don't understand the will of God. Coffin preached. Instantly, I was up and in hot pursuit, swarming all over here. I'll say you don't understand, lady. I said, I don't think it was the will of God that Alex never fixed that lousy windshield wiper, that he was probably driving too fast in a storm and he probably had a couple frosties too many. Do you think it was God's will that there are no streetlights along that stretch of road, not a guardrail separating the road from Boston Harbor? For some reason, nothing infuriates me so much as the incapacity of seemingly intelligent people to get it through their heads that God does not go around this world with his finger on triggers, his fist on knives, his hand on steering wheels. The one thing that should never be said when someone dies is, it's the will of God. We never know enough to say that. My own consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die that when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first of all of our hearts to break. Now, he's pretty eloquent in saying that. You see, such platitudes are offered when we're looking for sure answers or we can't muster the courage to be fully present with another person's pain. Or maybe it's just a throwaway that we think that things are the way they are and they just can't be changed. It was preacher Nadia Boltz-Weber who claims, I quote, sentiments do not whitewash away anyone's pain. It just makes the person saying it feel a little safer. So God does not cause pain and suffering, and it is never God's will that we cower in fear or endure storms alone. When Peter's fear overtook him and he began to sink, the text says several times, immediately Jesus reached out for him. Immediately, Jesus saved. Jesus did not go through some accounting of Peter's faith practices or a litmus test of, does there any faith and doubt in there? Jesus just saved all of Peter, the doubting and the faithful parts. And it's never God's will that we experience evil. It's always God's will to be with us. Now, the original Greek text is always sparse. There's no punctuation, there's no pagination, there's no paragraphs. They write as sparsely as they can, so there's no breath marks and certainly no tone of voice marks. So when they got back in the boat, some readers imagined Jesus sternly reprimanded Peter with a, why did you doubt? But instead, instead, Jesus' tone of voice could have been like that of a loving parent. Oh, you of little faith, I knew you could do it, and you did it. You stepped out. Now, I certainly can't edit scripture, but as the Spirit moves in me, I'd like to think that there might have been a few attaboys in the boat and some fist bumps, because what they did was miraculous. 
Jesus's Do Not Be Afraid confronts so many truths of our lives. Fear is infectious. One fear-inducing circumstance aroused doubt that was Jesus was present, and it spread from one disciple to another. And fear is dangerous because it turns us away from God. Fear can take us from focusing on what God has done and will do, and it will also take us from limiting what we think we can do or will ever do. Jesus' earthly life is bracketed against warnings of fear. When the angels announced his conception to Mary, it was with, first of all, do not be afraid. And the angel announcing the resurrection to women at the tomb also said, do not be afraid. Now, Peter gets to stand in for all of us who waver between fear and faith. Fear could have kept him locked on the shore or perhaps safe in the boat. But the miracle of Peter was walking on water revealed that he could do far more than he ever thought possible when he was walking towards Jesus. And the miracle of Jesus walking on water reveals that God will go to any length to meet us. And when they were all back in the boat, this was the first time the disciples said Jesus was truly God's son. You see, that's the whole purpose of the incarnation. That's when we learn the length to which God will go to be present when we encounter evil. And that's when we, as followers of Jesus Christ, know that we've got Jesus with us at all times, and we can begin to pay forward that grace in our lives. We pay forward the grace by placing our faith in something which is much bigger than us when others are faced with storms or evil. In 1940, the rescue of almost 400,000 British and Allied troops from the beaches of Dunkirk by small civilian vessels is often referred to as the miracle of Dunkirk. There's a current movie out, and I do recommend it, in which it features Mark Ryland as a Mr. Dawson who exemplifies all who had the courage and faith to sail into enemy waters. He, like hundreds of others, risked Nazi airfare, air, air attacks by sailing trawlers and lifeboats and pleasure crafts, anything that would float to rescue soldiers. And on Friday night, Brian McLaren was in Charlottesville, and he writes, the incoming students at the University of Virginia were some of the most courageous people he'd ever seen. They stood up for tolerance, diversity, compassion, and against neo-Nazis without fear. We are gathered in a house of worship that was gifted to us by those whom the Nazis sought to destroy. We are grateful for the gift of ordinary people who are willing to do extraordinary things, showing the power of God's love will prevail over evil. And there are also the very personal experiences we have of feeling lifted up by someone else and someone else's grace. Lenora Tubbs Tinsdale is an author who wrote an essay about her experience with breast cancer, and I quote, Some days in my fight for wholeness, I confess that the lions and tigers and bears threaten to overwhelm me. And she continues on with how sick and tired she is of being sick and tired, and she just doesn't have it in her sometimes. And here's the end of her essay. My nurse, incredibly and compassionate and kind, was a bit taken aback since ordinarily my disposition in the treatment room is sunny, but there was too much, too much terror that day. She brought me a box of tissues, began the IV that would send anti-nausea medicine into my veins. 
laid an afghan over my lap to warm me when the IV fluids made me cold, and pulled a lever at the side of my chair so that my feet would be comfortably propped up. As I lay there, I thought of the email I'd received the day before from my wonderfully encouraging daughter. You're tough, you know, Mama. She'd written to me, tough even if you don't feel like it. I felt less than tough. I felt like a coward who needed a new heart, like a tin man who lacked a soul, and like Dorothy who had been slung far from home and set on a torturous journey with no end in sight. I felt broken, beaten, down, and afraid. Tough is not usually how I feel these days, yet at some tender place deep down in my fearful heart, I wondered if I could believe in her vision of me. And perhaps lions and tigers and bears are not so threatening after all. For once again, I have been surrounded and upheld by a prior and more powerful grace. May it be so for all of us that we are upheld by a powerful and prior grace. Please pray with me. God, there are so many evils in this world that threaten us. Some on a grand scale, some are deeply personal. We offer to you now our prayers for faith as we face them. In the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, amen.